Welcome to the Drinking with the Saints podcast with Mike and Alexandra Foley. Where each week, we mix a bartender's guide with the lives of the saints to help you celebrate the feasts of the calendar with liturgically correct cocktails. Let's get started. Welcome to the Drinking with the Saints podcast. I'm Mike Foley. And I'm Alexandra Foley. And happy feast of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Huge feast. So excited. I love this feast so it's much. It's huge. We are really excited to share this episode with you. We are going to make what could quite possibly be the best cocktail in the world. In all of the Drinking with the Saints books, I would argue. It's magnificent. It's called The White Lady. We're going to make the drink first, then we're going to explain the drink, and then we will talk about the beautiful meaning of this feast. All right. So Shall let's I cut. read you the ingredients? Absolutely. So one thing we did, folks, this is a magnificent drink, but somewhat high maintenance. It requires beating egg whites and powdered sugar until they form soft peaks. So that would have been about five minutes of you hearing zzzz. So... <laughs> Uh, we have beat the eggs beforehand, and we're cutting straight to the chase with the other ingredients. That's right. So if you're following along in the books, there is a white lady in Drinking with the Saints, but this is a more complicated one that you can find in Drinking with Your Patron Saint. And we will talk about the story of the white lady. And it's also in Drinking with Saint Nick, which is a great book for this time of year, especially available on Amazon. <laughs> so read me the ingredients, my love. Okay, well, we already know one egg white and two teaspoons powdered sugar, which we've done ahead of time. And so now it's one ounce of gin, one ounce of vodka, one ounce of Cointreau. Gin. Vodka. And then Cointreau which sometimes we're for feeling cheap, we'll substitute triple sec. But Grand Marnier, I mean, uh, Cointreau, or Grand Marnier actually would work probably. Um, Cointreau is just so good, and you can use it for your high-end margaritas too. So then pour the egg mixture and all the other liquid ingredients, except the lemon bitters. So you're also going to need lemon bitters. I'm watching Mike <laughs> put, put, put the, the frothy eggs into the... Oh, it's They're very this fluffy. Is, it's a good thing this is not video, people. They, they, oh my gosh, they, stop. They take a lot of space in the... Well, it's like a meringue, you know, and it's... Yeah. It These egg whites are now the all... They're all over the room. You forgot the lemon juice. And then the lemon juice is one tablespoon each of fresh lemon juice. <laughs> this is a disaster. So we've done this before, but... He tried to put the lemon juice on top of the whole thing because I, I, it was my fault. And I used the biggest shaker I had, but it's still overflowing just for two drinks because it's that fluffy egg white. No, don't do that. What are you doing? So you can pour the Alexandra is getting very cheeky with it. Pour the, the lemon juice in. No, no. So that's enough because it's two tablespoons and you, you squeezed more. Most of it's gone onto the table though. If it's too bitter, we will blame Alexandra. This is the first marital fight we've ever had. <laughs> All right. Now we definitely need to shake vigorously because... There is some fluffy ingredients and some liquid ingredients that need to mix properly. Mike is usually the one who beats the eggs for this drink, and it's possible that I overbeat mm -hmm. them a little bit. Okay. You did it perfectly, my love. All right, here we go. 40 shakes. Oops, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this better be worth it. 
let's just say this cocktail was not immaculately conceived. Oh! All right, let's hope this works. We call this a first date drink because, as mentioned, it is a little bit difficult, and so we've done that with some friends. They want to impress, but I'm curious. I'm curious if, you know, after the first round, impressing your friends, if you just did egg whites, and so it was just like a frothy cocktail without the bother of mixing it. Well, we will talk about the different iterations of the white lady. Yeah. But first, we must drink. I'm just saying for our second round, maybe after the show, Mike, <laughs> we're just going to do egg whites. And then finally, it forms this wonderfully frothy head. You can top it off with lemon bitters. And here they are. Gotta say our prayer. Stay with us, O Lord, for it is getting towards evening. And bless our drinks and our conversation. Mary, immaculate, conceived without original sin. Pray Pray for for us who have have recourse to to thee. thee. Cheers. Cheers. We beg all of your prayers for us and for our families and our listeners and friends. Dang, that's good. Wow, it does not disappoint. Mm-mm. It is a boozy drink. An ounce of gin, an ounce of vodka, an ounce of Cointreau, but it doesn't taste boozy. It's so, I hate to say it, perfectly balanced. It's has kind of a candied quality to it that I just really love. I don't like drinks that are too sweet, and it's not. It's a nice balance of uh, the lemon, the sweetness, and then the eggy texture is just lovely. The, the egg is amazing. Yeah. And that, that sweetness with the powdered sugar and the frothiness, really good. I'm telling you, I just want to start adding egg white to all of my drinks. Well, that was a common thing, say, in the 1920s or before. And everyone was chicken farmers? I don't know why the popularity of egg white, but it, it adds a certain um, effervescence without the need for carbonation. Hmm. I would not have put it that way. Yeah, it's a good mouthfeel. Anytime you add egg white without frothing it, just regular egg white, mm-hmm. it, it makes it kind of bubbly. Really? Mm-hmm. That is an interesting way of describing it. Thank you. <laughs> we'll have to experiment and see if I agree. Well, All right, tell me about the Immaculate Conception, Mike. First, we want to talk to you about the story of the White Lady. So we have a good recipe for the White Lady in Drinking with the Saints and Drinking with the Saints Deluxe. There were several versions of the White Lady because it's, you know, not trademarked or copyrighted. And so we chose one and we liked it and we put it in the book. It's pretty simple. It's two ounces of gin, an ounce of triple sec, and an ounce of lemon juice. Very simple. And it's good. And so after the book came out, one of our friends, Father Robert Johansson. Hi, Father Johansson. Said, Mike, I read your book. Did you say it like that? Mike, (laughs) this is not Veep, right? (laughs) Read your book, uh, tried your recipe for the white lady. It's good, but I have a better one. Now, this may surprise our listeners, but sometimes I get lots of unsolicited advice. Especially for me. And so I thought, my love language. Okay, great. All right, Father, we'll try your little recipe. He sent it to us, and holy cow, was it amazing. It was this recipe. I asked him where he got it. He had he got it from a friend. It's from a cocktail book in the 1950s. We weren't able to track down the original source, but it completely 
pops. It is magnificent. So Wish you could all be here. It's so good. As Alexandra mentioned earlier, I was able to put it in the two sequels, Drinking with St. Nick and Drinking with Your Patron Saints. So I'm not trying to be a a bad, wicked capitalist with inbuilt obsolescence. But if you do want the superior version of The White Lady, you do need to buy one of the sequels. Sorry. Or look at our podcast notes. (laughs) Dang it, I probably just lost us a bunch of sales. Oh, and also we are doing the Advent cocktail calendar, Mm -hmm. and we are going to include the superior version of The White Lady in our daily recipe card. Which is a good time to mention. If you don't already, please follow us on Instagram at hashtag Drinking Saints or on Facebook at Drinking with the Saints is our Facebook. Yeah, you're going to get a lot of Advent free content. It's true. We're just giving this stuff away. Here we are. Whose idea was that? Well, shall we talk about the meaning of this amazing feast day? Yes, well, I still can. All right. We're boiling it down into three simple talking points. What the Immaculate Conception doesn't mean. Okay. What the Immaculate Conception does mean. And why? Why 1854? Why did the Holy Spirit, in his providence, motivate Pope Pius IX to solemnly define the dogma of the Immaculate Conception on December 8th, 1854. Hmm. Why then? Why not earlier? Why not later? Those are the three talking points. What do you think of that? I can't wait to answer the one, what it's not. Exactly. I'm really good at wrong answers, so I definitely want to nail that one. All right, good. So what it's not, it is not, go ahead. It's not the birth of Jesus. Or the conception of Jesus. See, I told you I was good. I'm I'm even good at wrong, wrong answers. Well, of course, Jesus was immaculately conceived. Uh, A very unusual conception conception? because it was without conjugal intimacy. Mary was overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. But that's not this. That's not what that is. So the second thing that was kind of a shock to us, we looked this up on Wikipedia, Immaculate Conception. And what did you find, Alexandra? Oh, yes. So Wikipedia says that her conception from, of course, her parents, uh, Anne and Joachim, Joachim, yep. uh, that that was a uh, virginal conception, conception without consummation. Like, what? That's Wikipedia. Come on, Wikipedia. I mean, I know they're not super accurate, but I, I do kind of like them sometimes. Right. Don't trust anything now. Not to mention, they also asked me to donate $2, so I was like, get bent. Yeah, they're doing a fundraising, but when you get information like that, you're like, I don't think I want to pay you people. I couldn't believe that. Sorry, Wikipedia. And it turns out, yeah, we will still take your sponsorship. <laughs> um, we, uh, I was just so surprised that, that they would say that, and apparently that was a heresy that was condemned. So not only is that completely false, but it was actually condemned by the Catholic Church Sometime in the 15 or 1600s, and it's actually kind of funny that um, there was this heresy in early modernity in the Catholic Church that thought that because Mary was immaculately conceived, she could not have been conceived in the usual way. And it was kind of a conjugal intimacy is dirty kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so the theory was that Joachim kissed his wife, Anne, and that led to her insemination with the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
The Holy Office condemned this as a heresy, said no, Mary was conceived through sexual congress in the normal way, Mm -hmm. but was preserved from original sin. But what I like about the heresy, and I normally don't like heresies. Sure, you're not a huge fan. Not a huge fan, but one thing is it really does affirm what an amazing kisser St. Jacob must have been. come on. (laughs) I had a couple of ideas where I thought you might be going with that, and that was definitely not one of them. Like just one kiss. Stop. You got to stop. All right. So for his feast day in drinking with the saints, I did find an old cocktail that's entitled The Soul Kiss. For those of you who are not familiar with this term, soul kissing was the American 50s slang for French kissing. But this really, according to the heresy, this really was a soul kiss. It was a kiss that implanted an embodied soul in the womb of St. Anne. By the way, trivia for you, you, do you know what the Foley, our children, call um, French kissing? No, I don't. Donkey kissing. Really? (laughs) They do. One of our youngest ones was asking me about it the other day. Like he'd heard about it and he's like, what's French kissing? And I explained it, and then he was like, I said, however, like, this is how the, the French actually kiss, you know, on either cheek. And he was like, oh, that's what it is? That's what we call donkey kissing. Like, they see it in the movies, and they're like, donkey kissing. Well, I didn't expect us to go here, but the white lady is taking its effect, Woo! so I do have to share with you. Oh, no. I had a college professor. So uh, glad you didn't say college girlfriend, go on. Who, uh mentioned that um, before he got the gig teaching on the college level, he was teaching in the 1960s at an all-girls high school. And a student came up to him and said, Mr. Perella, is it a sin to soul kiss? (laughs) And my teacher had a great sense of humor, and he said, I don't know, Mary. When it comes to these matters, I tend to take them tongue-in-cheek. Oh, Wow. (laughs) All right. We've got to get back on topic. Where were we? All right. So the Immaculate Conception is not the conception of Jesus. It is not the lack of conjugal intimacy of Jochum and Anne. Okay. What is it? It is that the Blessed Virgin Mary, conceived in the normal way, was at the moment of her conception preserved from all stain of original sin. Yep. And if that sounds surprising, I wish you to consider a couple of points. Oh, good. The first point is this. Mary was not made holy by... She was not made holy somehow independently of the sacrifice of the cross of her son. This is what is called a pre-application of grace. Prevenient? No, no, that actually, that, that's something different. Oh, never mind. Prevenient grace is grace that prepares you for supernatural grace. Oh. This oh. was supernatural I was grace. I trying to be all smart. Right from the get-go. Supernatural grace from the get-go, gotcha. So you think, well, that's weird. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet, and yet God pre-applies this grace to her at the moment of her conception. Right. I say unto you, why is that weird? Every sanctified soul prior to the crucifixion, somehow benefited from the crucifixion. If Abraham was holy, if Job was holy, Isaiah. if Moses was holy, if Isaiah was holy, we can go on and on, right? John the Baptist. It was all by virtue of the blood that our Savior would shed for us on the cross. Hmm. 
And so we are the beneficiaries of that after the fact. But every holy soul is holy by virtue of the sacrifice of the cross. God, in his infinite providence, pre-applied grace to souls prior to the crucifixion. And so with the Blessed Virgin Mary, it's exactly the same thing, except he applied it at the moment of her conception rather later in her life, like he did with the other figures from the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. He could do that. Totally. And I don't know if there's room in this conversation or time um, for just the idea that like eternity is outside of space and time. So Mary was conceived in time, but there's a way in which the crucifixion, which happened in time, also can have effects that are not just at the moment. Totally right. We're getting, we're, we're getting really deep right now. Eternity is past, present, and future all at once. That's absolutely right. One common misconception is that eternity is infinity. No. Infinity is one thing happening after another, another ad infinitum, but right. eternity is past, present, and future as present. As one moment. And so God, who is totally present to all of time, can sort of move the pieces on the chessboard to pre-apply grace from later in the story to earlier in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's cool. Like I think about how the angels that rebelled, like you think, well, what if, you know, someone once asked me, well, what if my guardian angel decides to go bad, to become a bad angel? What? Well, it's a great, no, it's a wonderful question. Who asked that? What, <laughs> what are you asking for names? <laughs> like I'm going to, I'm ratting hunt, out. I just want to hunt them down like a rabid dog. <laughs> ratting but... out my kids or something. <laughs> oh, okay. If it's a kid, I'll, I'll be more yeah, forgiving. Yeah, okay. There, gee. There are no bad questions, children. <laughs> Just stupid questions. Stop. But it's. I think that's a really good question. Like, what mm-hmm. if my guardian angel? Like, no, well, they're angels because they live outside of, of time. But good angels, they're at one moment, and they either chose the good or they chose the bad. So the bad angels, Satan, they chose the bad, they fell, and that's like their position for eternity. And the good angels are good for eternity. Yeah. It's outside time. Quite so. Quite so. All right. Moving on. All right. So here's second consideration I know this is a unique moment in history, but it should not surprise us because God in his infinite wisdom has done pre-applications of grace to preserve other holy figures from certain sins. For example... St. John the Baptist. Well, okay. So let me start with, there are several saints that God preserved from the stain of mortal sin. They lived their entire life without ever committing a mortal sin. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, I think, would be a good example of that. So there are saints that committed tons of mortal sins, Mm -hmm. St. Augustine, St. Paul, and then God, of course, redeems them. But he also had some saints preserved from ever committing a mortal sin. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah, I'm I'm tracking. All right. What's also interesting is that God preserved some people from ever committing a venial sin, which, let's be honest, that's a huge, tall order. I can't get, like, just from The just man sins seven times a day, to right? To leaving Mass without committing a venial sin, I've noticed. So Jeremiah speaks of being sanctified in the womb. So we believe that Jeremiah was preserved from ever committing a venial sin. We believe the same thing of John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. And there is a Catholic tradition that the same is true for St. Joseph. Mm, Which kind of makes sense. It would if be fitting. Be, if you're going to be head of the Holy Family, right. 
and you got these two sinless people that are under you, mm-hmm. it would kind of make sense. Yeah, it's fitting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, it'd be really hard to be a sinner and rule the mother of God and the God-man. Right. Right. So what happened was God sanctified several people in the womb, which means that they contracted original sin in the normal way. Mm-hmm. But then after they contracted original sin, God sanctified their souls in the womb, and that gave them the strength to never commit a personal sin. So if that's the spectrum, then it's only one step further to think with a case of the Blessed Virgin Mary, who's going to be the Ark of the Covenant, 100% of her DNA makes up the person of Jesus Christ. It, It makes sense that he would preserve her from the stain of original sin right from the very get-go. So how would you answer the question? Because it seems like some of those, like Jeremiah saying, I was sanctified in the womb. And what I think it was from this past Sunday's Mass propers about John the Baptist being like, no one's no one was born so perfect or something. How would you answer the question that the Immaculate Conception is not uh, biblical? Well, you know, it's so funny you should mention that, Alexander, because I had a pretty decent Catholic education, but elementary schools with the Irish Presentation Sisters. I like that was a little slur there, that Irish Presentation Presentation. Our Lady of Lords in Montclair, California was wonderful and the nuns were wonderful. But the ethos in California in the 70s was a certain kind of embarrassment that some of our doctrines were not um, well received by Protestants. Mm -hmm. And so the Immaculate Conception kind of came across as an embarrassment. And I don't think the nuns were broadcasting that, but that's what I kind of felt. Like, the Bible, it's important. Like, of course it's important. And yeah, maybe you had Protestant friends that were asking questions? (laughs) I had Protestant friends who were asking questions and making accusations. Yeah. Yeah. That make you sensitive to this. Very much I think I I basically learned about the Immaculate Conception when I was about, like, I think I was one of those people who thought it was the conception of Jesus until I was like 22. Yeah. So what's fascinating about Catholic doctrine is that some of the doctrines that seem the most outrageous at first blush, when you dig into them, are the most beautiful. Oh, that's lovely. And I really believe that about the Immaculate Conception. So the short answer is there is no direct biblical citation of the Immaculate Conception. Right. On the other hand, it maps on perfectly. Mary is the new Eve. She is the one who crushes the head of the serpent with her heel. Amen. There is nothing in the Bible, and I invite your feedback, but there is absolutely nothing in the Bible that contradicts the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And the Bible itself is very clear. The written tradition that is the Bible is not the only source of revelation. Right. There are oral traditions, and the Immaculate Conception is one of them that also are disclosures of the truth. Hmm. So, one thing that is interesting about the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is that, unlike, for example, the Feast of the Assumption, or the doctrine of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Immaculate Conception was hotly contested 
throughout church history, there is early testimony to it. The Eastern Rites, for example, celebrated December 8th as the conception of St. Anne, huh. which means Anne may immaculately conceived mm-hmm. the Blessed Virgin Mary in her womb. Oh, it's not the conception of, of Anne with her mother and father. I gotcha. Yeah. So, I got spaced out for a second because I was wondering if there's another drink because honestly, I don't feel anything from this drink. Could it be the egg white? <laughs> I don't feel anything from this drink. Anyway, I got distracted. Go on. Well, and I won't bore you with the details, but this is the difference Thank between you. an objective genitive and a subjective genitive. Oh, talk to me, baby. Well, when you say the conception of St. Anne, do you mean that Anne was conceived? Oh, yeah. Or that Anne did the conceiving and the East meant the latter? But you can still see that confusion, the conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary was she the conceiver right. or the conceived, okay. right? So, so in other words, people who do think that... Genitives are ambivalent. Ambivalent. I love that. <laughs> That's a Michael Scott reference. No, Isn't that it? was a SNL parroting George W. Bush. <laughs> Sorry, I laughed a little too loud on that one. Oh, SNL. I miss you being great. Okay, where are we? All right, so it is true, though, that there was controversy over the Immaculate Conception and... Some of our favorite heroes failed short. Mm -hmm. St. Thomas Aquinas, who is super awesome and is, and I'm an Augustinian, folks, but I would say that the best theologian in the history of the Catholic Church is Thomas Aquinas. Wow, strong words. But he missed the boat Mm -hmm. because he was too indebted to Aristotelian embryology. And Aristotle is a very cool guy, but the poor guy, like, without a microscope, Let's be honest, folks. You can know jack squat about embryology, Hmm. right? The ovum was not discovered until the 19th century. They had no idea how conception took place. And so Aquinas landed wrong on the teaching of the Immaculate Conception. But John Dunn Scotus, who is often thought of as a bad theologian... Isn't that where we get the word dunce? We get the word dunce from that, and dunce cap, like he Mm -hmm. was pilloried, but to his credit, he got it. And I will be honest with you folks, for you theologians in the crowd, I have a whole new respect to John Dunce Scotus because of my good friend, Tom Ward. Hi, Tom. Beautiful new new book. He just—it's a book that's for people like me. He's written books on Scotus that are for people like Mike. The Dummy's Guide to John Dunn Scotus. A little bit of a Dummy's Guide. No, like he wrote it with people like me and mine. Like just here's an introduction to Scotus and the beauty—the beauty of his theology. Yeah. And and one of his big things was about the Immaculate Conception. So the big insight that Scotus had that Aquinas couldn't figure out is well. If Mary was conceived without original sin, how could she be saved by Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. And it was John Duns Scotus who had the insight, you can save someone after they've fallen into a ditch, and then you pull them out, but you can just as easily save them by stopping them from falling, falling into, into the, the ditch. ditch. So, so that was his, God that was his words. saved Mary by grabbing her before she fell into the ditch. Like a gentleman who throws his raincoat over like a, right. a little ditch. He's like, here you go. And I learned that from a sermon by Father Robert Verrill, who's a wonderful Dominican priest now oh. back in England. Oh, gosh, I miss him. Some of the best sermons I've ever actually heard from a Catholic pulpit are about the Immaculate Conception. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot to chew on. Alexandra, we turn now 
to the third talking point of the evening. Dun, dun, dun. Why did Pope Pius IX, on December 8th, 1854, invoke his power, authority as Pope, and solemnly and infallibly defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary? I don't know, but you've already given me chills. Ooh. What do we call those? Like prevenient chills. <laughs> I'm just glad after 25 years of marriage, I can still give you chills. <laughs> that I'm still listening to you is pretty much a miracle. <laughs> it is indeed. All right, tell me, tell me, tell me. Here's the short answer. I don't know. Oh, oh my goodness. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that is foul play, my friend. Sometimes I'm a tease. <laughs> Come on, you must have something. All right, so another great homily I heard was from a priest of the Fraternity of St. Peter, and he speculated that Marian dogmas were solemnly defined in modernity because A, they're real and true and they need to get out there, but B, they were providentially timed to respond against the errors of the age. Hmm. So what I found most touching was that in 1950, mm -hmm. Pope Pius XII solemnly defined the dogma of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin right. Mary. It's so weird how some Armenian dogmas and doctrines are so late. And that was a relatively uncontroversial part of the question. So what happened, what, why, why 1950? And the theory is it was a response to the anti-Semitism of the Nazis. Okay, uh, you're talking about uh, assumption. Five years after the Holocaust, the horrors of the Holocaust became publicly known. Pope Pius XII solemnly said, Mary's Jewish body is in heaven. Oh, that's so beautiful. Oh, the Jewish body. Her and, Semitic body. And, and Jesus's Jewish body is what yeah. I go to communion to every That's exactly right. Opportunity. So this was a true doctrine all 20 centuries, but to choose five years after the end of World War II and say, Mary's Jewish body is glorified in heaven. All right, so that's the assumption. So what's going on in the 19th century? What's going on in the 19th century is romanticism and the influence of Rousseau. Mm -hmm. And Rousseau is basically saying, everyone is immaculately conceived. There is no original sin. All our foibles are a product of our environment. Man is born good. Man is born good, and yet everywhere he's in chains. Right. You're totally awesome, dude, but your environment makes you a victim. We okay. see a lot of this talk today, don't we, no, in, Rousseau, in American political discourse? I loved reading Rousseau in college because I just found him like, I want to believe that. Like It was intoxicating to read Rousseau. And then I remember I had lunch with my dad one time, and he was like, yeah, Rousseau is like completely wrong. <laughs> wait, wait, tell me more. Well, Rousseau is the father of the modern left. Yeah, right. That you're, that you're born innocent, and that everything that's bad about you is just sort of like the culture, man. Mm -hmm. It's just the oppression of man, man. So the fascinating thing about the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is that the liberals of the age, the controversy is not that Mary was immaculately conceived, the controversy is that she's the only one who is immaculately conceived. That's so Because cool. liberals believe everyone is immaculately conceived. Right. And it's just their evil environment that makes them sour. Well, if I had any more of my drink, I would toast to you, Michael Foley, for that's awesome. 
remembering that from a homily you heard and sharing that with me because that's so interesting. I wish I could remember the FSSP priest who shared that, but it was it was really good. Well, if any of our listeners have heard that before from a priest, let us know. Yeah. Write to us. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Happy feast. It's a glorious feast. And yeah, and like if you have things to say to us, uh, you can write to us at podcast at drinkingwiththesaints.com. We'd love to have your engagement. And I think we're still taking submissions for what our listeners should be called. Give us a nickname, people. The Sweet Babies was not going to go over well. (laughs) All right. Have a wonderful Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Please, in addition to listening to our podcast, do something wonderful with your family and glorify God through all your works. To your health and holiness. God bless. Thank you for joining us. Please get in touch with us via email at podcast at drinkingwiththesaints.com or on our Instagram page at Drinking Saints and find Drinking With The Saints book series at drinkingwiththesaints.com or wherever fine books are sold. The Drinking With The Saints podcast is produced by Back Row Media.